Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, while I'm busily working on my book, How to Talk to Kids About Anything, based in part on this podcast and the hundreds of parenting books we've discussed together, it's awesome that we have so many great quotable guests that I literally get to quote even those chapters in my book. And I'm currently writing the chapter about talking to kids about friendship and bullying while editing another on big feelings. And today's guests will surely be quoted as they have done amazing work in the area of parent-teen conversations around technology and sleep, anxiety about current events, consequences, and family problem solving. How many parents have been left wondering after having a conversation with their teen, what just happened? Why did they just shut me out? Why did that go so badly? What should I do or say next? We're going to find out some of those answers from William Stixrude, PhD, and Ned Johnson today. Now, Ned Johnson is a motivational coach who runs an elite tutoring service, and William Stixrude, PhD, is a clinical neuropsychologist who we have had on this podcast previously. He talked about the best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, which he also wrote with Ned Johnson. Now, these two are some of the top go-to voices on parenting in the media. Stixrude and Johnson have more than 60 years combined experience talking to kids, and we are so excited to have them both on the show today. So welcome, Bill and Ned, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Nice to be here, Robin. Thank you for having us. I'm thrilled to have you. I loved reading your new book, which is called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. But before we get into the new book and we talk about the tough conversations with teens, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in talking to teens about these issues from technology to sleep to consequences? So, I mean, for, for me, I, I, I feel that as a clinical neuropsychologist, I test kids for a living. And, and I, I, I try to figure out what, what the problem is, what, what, you know, what's going wrong, and also what, what, what they're good at, what's going right, and try to help them. And just my experience in, in life is that I, I don't find anything more enjoyable than really helping people understand themselves, helping parents understand their, their kids. And, and I think that's the great part, one of the great joys of my work is talking with children and, and, and teenagers and young adults to, to, about what I learned about them and, and uh, to help so that they understand themselves in an encouraging way. 
And so I feel like both Ned and I have just, you know, spent hours talking with kids and teenagers and kind of have, have really, we're just sharing in our new book some of the, the ways that we've found that, that we that really connecting with kids and being able to influence them in a positive way and help them also just help them understand what's important to them and what, what they want to do. And then that's, uh, that, 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 that's me. Okay. And Ned, what about you? Well, I, I love, I love helping and I love teenagers in the way that they think. And yeah. so helping teenagers and maybe helping the way that they think is, is pretty, it's kind of doubly cool. Um, you know, as you mentioned, my principal work, my day job is, um, you know, helping kids prepare for and battle an, an alphabet of standardized tests for college mm -hmm. admissions and graduate school and all this kind of jazz, but almost always a big chunk of our work ends up being stuff beyond the content that's on the test of, of, you know, of the importance of sleep and the problems of sleep insufficiency and how do you put yourself in the right mindset the day of the test, how do you reframe setbacks, how do you study better, blah, 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 blah. And all these things, I, I get to tackle these things because they're, they're really important for helping kids do their best on, on, on tests that feel really high stakes. But of course, these are things that are way more important, in my view, than the tests themselves. And, and, and when I do my job well, when I get the right opportunity, ideally, I'm sharing with them wisdom that really can impact their other important parts of their lives in, in, in ways that, that linger longer than a, a silly test score. Mm. That's an important uh, distinction there. I agree with you that there's so much more than those academics. And when we're talking to kids, and you stress this throughout your book, I mean, that we really need to make sure that we're not just harping on that one thing, that there is so much more going on in these kids' lives. And it's easy for parents to start to get really hung up on what their kids are doing and how they're performing and you know, what's going on at school and on the sports field. And when it comes down to it, when we really need to have these conversations with kids, it's about hearing them like and you start your book off with active listening like really how can we hear these kids and what is really important to them and what is really going to serve them throughout their lives now some people i would say get the feeling that active listening is probably like i don't know saying aha uh -huh, and nodding your head and we had one podcast guest celeste headley who had a very popular ted talk about listening and she said you don't have to look like you're listening if you're really listening. And on the hmm. one hand, like I, I completely get that sentiment, of course. But on the other hand, you, you, we all know that kids often need to see indicators that we get them since they're not often so great about reading facial expressions and may get our listening face sort of mixed up with our concerned face or our angry face. <laughs> so how do we show our kids that we are listening, that we are engaged, that we're not listening to reply, <laughs> we're actually listening, and what should we absolutely avoid? Well, in the first chapter of, our, of, of, of what do you say, it, it's about how to communicate to, to build closeness and connection. And the, the idea is, is that the, the way, but part of the concern in part is that given all these mental health problems and just a dramatic increase uh, even before COVID and it got worsened by COVID and knowing that it, 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 as close to a silver bullet as you can get to, to protecting kids from serious mental health problems is having a close relationship with parents. 
And in so we, we wanted to start a new book with how do, how do we make that connection? How do we stay connected? And so much of, of, of the research is simply on empathy. It just is, is really letting kids know that we understand them and we don't judge them. In fact, we, we talk with dozens of, of teenagers in the process of writing this book. We had, we had these kind of these, um, these, we these groups in various schools. And one of the questions we asked them is, who do you feel closest to? And they invariably said somebody who listens when I talk and doesn't judge me and somebody who doesn't tell me what to do. And I think that, so what we, we and we look every place we look to understand how, how do you really communicate with kids? How do you let them know you're, you're, you're listening? Well, you, 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 you kind of repeat back to them. You say, you know, what, what, what I'm hearing is, are, are, are you saying that? So we're, we're trying to actively, the active part of active listening, reflective listening, we're reflecting back what kids are saying. That this isn't new. This is something that was developed in the 1960s and is used widely in many therapies. But but it's 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 a technique for just letting kids know that we're trying to understand: Am I getting this right? And I know you also mentioned in your book, like one of those systems is that WIG, like what I get. <laughs> What I got, what I get, yeah. yes. Yeah, so this is a wonderful guy named Ron McGinn uh, who, who, who describes it as wigging. And exactly as you said, as Bill said, it, it, wigging is what I got is. And there, there's sort of two real advantages to this. One is that um, sometimes when kids bring us problems, the first thing out of our mouths might not be as effective as we want it to be. It, we, might, we might jump into problem solving, we might dismiss it, whatever, or we might just be tongue-tied. And this is a really, it's a really great way for us as, as parents, particularly for receiving information, it's like, holy smokes, and, and you're like, ah! It, it's a way for us to give, to give us time to sort of, you know, kind of count to 10 in our heads. And so if, you know, if, if your kid comes to you and said, you know, I, I just got in this terrible fight with Jenny, you know, and, I, and we're on social media, and I end up calling her, a, you know, a terrible word, and, 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 and now no one won't talk to me at all. Right, your tendency as a parent, well, well did you apologize? Right? Well, why, why did you do that? What did you, you know, you know, something like that? We jump into problem solving, but it makes it, it, it misses the opportunity for our kid to feel like we understand her or him and to calm their emotions where you could simply say things like, so wait, let, me, let, let me repeat that back. So you were on social media and you were, and, and kind of things got a little heated and, and you said some, some th unkind things to your good friend, Jenny, and then she said bad thing and some meetings back and now you guys aren't talking, and the whole thing blew up. Did, did, did I get that about right? Yeah, that's totally it. You know, it gives us the opportunity to make our kids feel, or anyone, this works for spouses and colleagues and friends and, and maybe not friends as well, to feel that you're understood, that the other person gets you is one of the single best ways to come Hard emotions because we've all had the experience of trying to throw out solutions when someone is still spun up and then those solutions don't take and, and then we're then everybody's kind of frustrated so one it, it you know this this reflective listening buys us time and also gets us buy-in before we start giving advice i love that that whole idea of of buy-in and and getting those kids on board and I know that in those moments when the emotions are high and our kids are upset, we do often go into that problem solving mode. And we also may use some of your don'ts 
Mm -hmm. Very much so. And I'm not excluding myself from any of this, by the way. So, I mean, most parents would admit that sometimes nagging, reminding, lecturing, micromanaging will happen in those moments and in other moments in their homes. And you actually propose in your book having the parent as a consultant, which is like I think of it as like the anti-helicopter parent. So Mm -hmm. you talk a lot about language you use to motivate that doesn't go into the negative direction of nagging and lecturing and reminding, and instead is used to support without force and put the responsibility and choice on the child. So can you talk a little bit about what happens when we do go in that negative direction of nagging, reminding, and lecturing, And what it can sound like when we step back and we use the language of support and no force and confidence building in that child making their own choice. You know, Robin, uh, I'm often asked to, um, by parents, to talk a kid into something. I've I've told them a million times, Maybe you can tell him, you know, that kind of, you're, 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 you got a PhD, maybe he'll believe you. And what I say is I don't believe in, in talking kids into stuff, but, I, what I, but I'm happy to talk to, to him about it. And I, I almost in, what I do is, is when I talk to a kid and, and a, kid's, a kid's resisting something that's probably in his own best interest. The first thing I say is that I don't want anybody to try to force you to do this. I want this to be your call. You're, you're a smart enough kid to make decisions like this. And, and, I, and I'd like you to make an informed decision. So is it okay if we just talk about it a little bit, knowing that nobody's gonna, I, I don't want anybody to force you to do this. Mm-hmm. And if I say that, if I take force off the table, almost invariably, kids will have a, a discussion with me. I can share my point of view. And the story in the book about a kid who'd, resist and take, who'd resisted taking his medicine for ADHD for six years. He was in eighth mm-hmm. grade in a Catholic school, was applying out to other Catholic high schools and was completely tanking academically. And the, the, the pediatrician had had a come to Jesus meeting with him, trying to get him to, to take the medicine. The kid said, take me. And so the mother asked me, and I, and I, I said, well, I'll, I'll talk to him about it. And first, so I, I said, I said, I, I don't want anybody to try to force you. If somebody tried to force you, all you do is you put the pill in your cheek and then you pretend to swallow, then you go spit it out. And I, and I, I, if somebody tries to force you, I want you to do that. But I want you to make an informed decision. I think it makes sense that for some people, it's like turning on a light switch. I think it makes sense to try the medicine and see if it helps you. If it doesn't help you, don't take it. Even if it helps you, you get to decide whether to take it or not. And this kid started the medicine a couple of days later. And <laughs> literally, my mother called me six weeks later, said he's, he's got, he's, he's got, he was straight C's, now he's straight A's. And the medicine isn't, all, isn't always that, isn't usually right. that dramatic. But what I'm saying is simply that, that by taking, letting kids know that we aren't, if you just say, I know I couldn't make you do that. It's a little disarming at, at first. We could have, feel a little powerless. But it just acknowledges the reality that we can't make kids do stuff. And if we, if we start with by taking the force off the, the table, then we can communicate in a way that's respectful. And we're much more likely to get kids to go along with us and to do what's in their own best interest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the other thing that just occurred to me, Bill, in that, in that story about that kid whom, whom you, you had communicated with so effectively, it's, it's, I'm also thinking how much of the grades went from C's to A's because he had the stimulant medication that kind of equilibrated his, you know, his neurochemistry, his biochemistry, and how much of it was because they had changed the energy. 
that the, the, the parents weren't forcing. He wasn't resisting what his own, you know, kind of invested in his own, in his own failure. I mean, so much of our book, Robin, is really talking about changing the energy, you know? And so, so in addition to, you know, to, to not forcing and not nagging, we also make the point of not rescuing. And this is really hard um, in, in part because when, you know, we have what's called what, what psychologists describe as a writing reflex. And so when someone we care about, particularly, you know, our, our kids come to us with a problem, we're wired to want to jump in and start solving it, right? We're also wired if our kid is upset, to, you know, to start trying to soothe them and, and, and sometimes even talk them out of their hard emotions, in part because if, if someone that we care about is really distressed, it's distressing to us. Yes. And we want to get, we want to get rid of their distress to help them, but also to help to help ourselves, right? And so that's why, we, and 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 that's why we'll jump in to start solving things. And as all of us as parents know that the kids will then times, no, that won't work, and they're like, oh my gosh, I have the solution, right? Or we can <laughs> sort of you know dismiss it positivity, right? Tell them, well, it's not such a big deal, and try to talk them out of these out of these feelings. And it's a huge, from our perspective, it's a huge problem and a huge missed opportunity. It's a problem because. It can give kids the message that someone else other than them is responsible for solving their own problems. Or it can give them the problem that my mom or my dad really can't handle these hard emotions. When things are going rough, they, they, don't, they, don't, want, they don't want to know about it. They're trying, to, they're trying to talk me out of being upset when I know darn well that I'm upset. The missed opportunity is that we want kids to have the experience with our help to solve their own problems, including putting things in perspective and being able to talk themselves out of their hard feelings and, and maybe and, and shift their perspective on it. And one of the ways that we do this again, and one of the ways we come close to people emotionally is hanging with them when their feelings are hard and not immediately trying to solve it or talk them out of it. We simply say, man, that sounds really rough. You know, you're, 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 you've totally blown up things on social media and now Kelly's not talking to you. Boy, that is, a, that is a hard day, right? Note, I haven't approved of the kid's behavior. You shouldn't have called her those terrible names. I haven't told her what to do. Have you apologized yet? And I haven't tried to talk her out of her feelings saying three months from now, this will be bygones and you guys will be pals again. I'm just, I'm hanging there. And, and so, you know, people talk about creating space and just being with the person to kind of, you know, to, to help them, you know, co-regulate their emotions because eventually, Kids are going to figure out what maybe, maybe, maybe I should apologize. Do you think I should apologize? Seems like a good idea, right? Well, maybe it isn't such a, maybe, maybe she was just having a day. That's a helpful way to look at this. And we can cue our kids, but in a perfect world, we don't do thinking for them that they can do themselves because we want them to be prepared to go out into real life with these skills that we've nurtured oftentimes just by our energy of being empathetic and validating. I think that's extremely smart and it makes complete sense. Of course, when our emotions are running high, we really have to remember this. And it's tough because you want to solve the problem because you feel horrible and you know your child feels horrible. And so it comes along with practice and breathing and trying to talk <laughs> ourselves off of a ledge and good self-talk, which you talk about in your book too. And I, I feel like it, when you're talking about this in particular, this topic of kind of the takeover, it's reminding me of another piece of your book, which really struck a nerve with me, which was on accommodations, which is like, it's similar. It's not the same. I'm just, I'm saying it's similar 
because these accommodations and our willingness to accommodate our children can backfire on our desire to raise responsible, self-reliant children. And I'm admitting right here on our call and we, <laughs> I have over a million downloads now. So here we are, world, guess what? Now I admit, I sometimes do this. <laughs> like I sometimes do this for my child when my son is like dragging along in the morning and I want him to eat breakfast and like, I want to be more comfortable that he has started his day and eaten breakfast. I might make his oatmeal for him and stick it in front of him and say, here's your oatmeal. So, and I know that's wrong. I all, all I know it while I'm doing it. It's not even that I don't know. I, I know I'm not doing the, the right thing. So can you talk about first, how accommodations can be a hindrance to responsibility and self-reliance and how we can then talk to our child about putting these accommodations away so that they can step up, like kind of like a team role in getting rid of the accommodations. So we, we talk about accommodations in a chapter on change. And you know, so, so, so often, one of the questions that we get the most from parents is how do I motivate my kid? Mm -hmm. And you know, it, we realize that what, what they're really saying is how do I get my kid to change? To, to, to want what he doesn't want or to work harder than he is. And so we, we really looked at what, what do we know about the science of change? And we, we looked in part to something called motivational interviewing, which is a way of listening that uses that active listening, but, but really is designed to help kids find their own reasons for changing. We could talk about that too, but the, the accommodations comes from, uh, we, we talk about something, it's a program out of Yale for treating anxiety in kids that just works with parents. And it's, it's called, the, the acronym is SPACE, uh, mm -hmm. Supportive Parenting of Anxious Childhood Emotions. And the idea is that it, because we're mammals, as Ned said, because we're mammals, we're wired to, to, soothe, to, to protect our young from, from harm and to soothe them. And with, with kids who are anxious, we tend to make accommodations for them. So if the kids, kids are really worried about, really worried about taking the bus, we, we, they'll, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll ask questions and we repeatedly reassure them. Mm -hmm. And that repeated reassure them is probably the reassuring, is probably the most common accommodation that we make for anxious kids. And it turns out that the, the more we accommodate anxious kids, the more we say, well, we, we don't have to have people over tonight if you're, if you're, if you're worried, if it makes you, makes you anxious. Mm -hmm. The more we accommodate, the more anxious kids get. Mm -hmm. So what we, what we want to do is what we want to recognize the way that we're, we're doing things for an anxious kid that we didn't do for somebody else. And then let the kid know, and we talk about how to do this in the book, but, but let, let the kid know, I used to think you couldn't handle your anxiety, being anxious about this. I used mm -hmm. to think that I needed to, to change in these ways. And I realize now that I'm selling you short. I, I realize now that, 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 that I don't need to do this. And you could handle anxiety. In fact, I'm 100% confident you can. And so I think that, that, that the combinations itself, we talk about it in terms of, of, of anxiety. And, and I'll just say that, you know, you got kids really tired one morning making his breakfast, you know, big, you know, doing it for him. You know, it's, it's no big deal. It's, it's, right. it's just that if we're chronically, if we're chronically, yes, right. if we're chronically doing things for kids that they could do for themselves, mm -hmm. then we, we, we probably aren't helping them. I yeah. think you're right. Yes. Go ahead, and Ned. 
And I would add to that, I mean, that, that same Iran, again, we, we talked about before, makes the point that we make deposits to our kind of emotional or relational bank account by showing care and respect to, to other, other people, right? And including, including our kids. And so the, the challenge with accommodations is, and I think I love the way you said that, Bill, the challenge with accommodations is it shows care. I'm so concerned for you. I love you so much. I'm so worried. But it, but it can be, not intentionally, but it can be kind of in some ways disrespectful that you can't handle this without me. And our, your kids may feel that way too. I can't, and mom, I can't do it without you. And I, I just love the way we expressed that, Bill, that, that, you know, I used to think that you can handle this. And I know it's going to be a little bit scary, but, I, but this is something you can do. And, and, and we just, we kind of normalized those feelings that, you, you know, you don't have, you don't have courage without some fear. Right? You're going to be jittery before giving a d debate or asking out, you know, a, a, a friend on a date or, a, or you know, or, or, or addition, you know, trying out for the soccer team or the school band or, or, you know, student government or whatever, you know, going to school for the first day, you know, talking to your team, all these things are a little scary. And will, will you do it for me? Well, mommy, you do it, you do it, right? Mm -hmm. And we've, we've all had that. And it's not that you never do that. But part of the reason that we talked we, in our, our subtitle of how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home, we, we thought for a while about resilience. But one, I think resilience is in about 14,000 other parenting titles to the point that I kind of feel like the, the, the meaning of it, it's been sort of been lost. Resilience, classically, technically, is just the ability to revert to or return to a previous state or shape. And so what we really expect for us and for our kids is that there are parts of our day that are kind of stressful. Do we get bent out of shape? Yeah, I get bent out of shape. And the mark of, of mental health and mental resilience is how well or how quickly do I return to my previous state? And you don't, you know, and so you don't develop resilience. You don't have tolerance to stress unless you have stress and learn to tolerate it. Yes. And so when we parents, if we're always, always the soother, always the walking baby blanket, always the toddler whisper, we want kids to learn to be able to whisper to themselves, this is kind of hard, but I know I can do it. Mm. Right? Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with that and, and feel that I, I often have conversations with my own daughter about, about anxiety and the only way to get through anxiety is to do the thing that scares you. Mm -hmm. It's probably something she could repeat uh, many times over <laughs> uh, because yes, right. And you do say in your book, not to repeat things over and over. And I've noted that in my head, but there it is. I did say that, <laughs> but I, that has this great cartoon, Rob. This is dad holding his two sons by the nape of the neck and saying, listen up boys and listen up good. Cause I'm only going to tell you this a million times. I remember it. <laughs> Yes, you are absolutely right. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I think parents often get, I think they get some mixed messages about, you know, how they really can build up their kids. And and we just talked about one, I mean, stepping back to allow your children to step up and, and not accommodating for them, you know, and calling ahead to the parent that they're going to the play date with and can you do you have a dog and can you put the dog away and do you have this and do you have this kind of food and can we meet somewhere else so he doesn't like bees and the you know going through all of that and and making it so the world feels like a scary place backfires but i think parents mm -hmm. sometimes get 
some some mixed messages about how they can build their children up so that they do feel more courageous and confident. We've talked in our worlds about praise and overpraise and and how we can absolutely overdo that. And we're in a world where there's a lot of pressure and comparisons. So we often do feel like we want to praise our children so that they understand that they don't need to compare themselves and and we want you to feel good the way you are. The way I, I view children is their assets to be developed, not deficits to be managed. And when I present, I often talk about strengths, which resonated with me when I was reading your book, recognizing strengths in yourself and recognizing them in others. And you, you do echo this in the book. So can you talk about how we can highlight our children's strengths that might help them internalize these nuggets that we might tell them about? in a way that it's not like empty praise, like the real thing, how they can feel more confident about themselves, their work, their abilities, their contributions to the world, especially for those children who do not fit that mold of that child who often gets praised for everything anyway, you know, not maybe the most athletic, most academically inclined, artistic, et cetera. So Hmm. can you talk about that, how we can kind of instill that feeling of strengths in our children even if they don't fit that mold? Well, I think one, one part of that is that um, in psychology, they, they talk about an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. And it's just what it sounds like. It does, does, the, does the, my sense of myself, is it dependent on what I know or believe about myself and, or how much of it is dependent on, on what others say or believe about me? And so the challenge with praise is it externalizes things. So, you know, there's a cartoon, since we're talking about cartoons, a little, you know, a a kid holding up a a painting that she's, a picture that she's drawn to her parents and saying, is that my best work, right? And we don't don't wanna be there where kids are constantly, or any of us are constantly looking to people around us where our opinion of what what other people think about us is more important than our opinion about ourselves. Now, one way to think about kind of a healthy praise is, is rather than praise, a sort of validation or a sort of acknowledgement, right? You, you know, rather than woohoo, you know, you did the best, that's the prettiest picture ever. <laughs> you know, I, I, noticed, I noticed that you really, you really took care with the hands this way that I hadn't seen the hands, are, you know, sort of drawn quite that way compared to the pictures you've done before. Can you tell me about that? Right. Or I, I noticed when you're in line, you know, that you let you let that other that other child go in front of you rather than rather than rushing in front of him. That seemed like a really kind thing to do. And we don't overdo it, you know, woo, you know, kind of everything. But we just we just sort of acknowledge because those from my perspective, those very small, subtle things are much more powerful than lots of words and sort of throwing throwing a parade. Um, because if we can notice things within kids that are that are th- th- things that are already within them, things that matter to them, um, and this goes back to the listening at the beginning, and we just acknowledge that this is true about them, it deepens that within them, and then they carry that, and they don't need someone to constantly validate them and tell them that this is their best work. Mm. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll mention that we we talk about. Um, praise and strengths in a chapter on motivation. And, and in part it, that, that both of us are big fans for the most part of uh, Carol Dweck's mindset theory and the idea of, of, of praising kids for their effort. But as somebody who tests kids for, for a living, I also, I, I want them to know their strengths. And, and often, it, it, typically you, you become successful 
by by working really hard to get good at something that comes easily to you. I mean, that that no, if, if I tried to make a living as an artist, I have terrible spatial ability, or an engineer, I'd, I'd be homeless. And and, and the, so the, I want kids to understand. Here, here's the, I, I, here's some stuff you can do better than, than a lot of kids than, than, than mm -hmm. most kids. And so, um, and when I test kids, what I say to them if they're if they're over eleven or so, I say. I hope I find stuff that you suck at because most <laughs> successful people are good in some things and they suck at other stuff and you make a living by doing the things you're good at. And, and to, to your question, your point, Robin, about the kids who aren't, who aren't ready star students and getting a lot of praise. But what we want to do is now a lot of the kids that I see, they aren't particularly good students or they aren't good athletes, but, but I say, well, what do you love to do? Be with my friends. And what I say is, is, is you're probably going to make a living Doing, doing something that, that involves interacting with other people in a skilled way, whether it's teaching them or motivating them or counseling them or, or selling to them. And I want you to work hard in school because those careers that, that you get to, where you talk to people for a living, you, you, you always need a college degree and, and, and often need a master's degree. So I want you to work hard. And you're, what, what, I, I, Carol Dweck says, don't tell kids they're smart. Mm -hmm. my, my, my feeling is, is say you're smart enough. I always mm -hmm. tell you, the, the thing that all I care about is you're smart enough mm -hmm. to do what you want to do. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, that, that, I, we found that the word enough came up a lot just mm. in, as, as, a, as a kind of an antidote to perfectionism. Mm. In this case, just letting kids, you know, you, you, you don't have to be the smartest kid in your grade. You don't have to be the smartest kid in your class. You don't have to be, you, you have to be smarter. Than, you just have to be smart enough to do something interesting and, and rewarding. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I think we may have talked about this the last time, but I feel like when you have a child who doesn't always know his strengths or her strengths and, and you notice something interesting about them and you reflect it back to them, I think it does something beautiful for them. And I don't mean like the empty thing, like Mm. I don't know. Breathing. You know, I, I mean, like, like my son, he's not a, not a loud kid, not the, you know, the, the shiny parade kid. I find him so interesting because he notices things other people don't notice. He has ADHD and he has a noticer's brain and explorer's brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kid, we walk outside and he's spotted the cat in the tree and the he know he's the one who points out the sunset and the moss on the rock, things I just walk past. And, and I call him the finder of all lost things because if you lost your keys, he's the one to get them. Hmm. So it's interesting what I find that it does for, for children who don't always know their strengths until you reflect them back is that then when something happened, like we were at a, uh, the softball field and somebody lost their keys, and he said, I will go look for that. Because all of a sudden there's almost like an ownership of that strength. Like that's my jam. So therefore I should go and do this to be helpful because it's my strength. I feel like while it's important to embrace effort that reflecting those strengths back to these kids, realizing that you notice those little things that maybe not the sports, you know, oh, he's the, the captain of the team, but those little things, it says I'm paying attention and what you bring to the table is important. Wouldn't you agree? Completely. And, and I mean, I, I, I've been a neuropsychologist for 
almost 40 years. And, and I, from, the, from my very first kid I evaluated, I, get, I give the kids feedback and I say, Here, here's the things that, the, the, and what I, and I tell them from a testing point of view, here's the stuff that, that I think you're really good at. Mm. And, and I also say, and I just, and I write out, I, I write it out in my, in my own hand and, and I'll, I'll write down the personal qualities that, that, that either I notice myself or the other people. And it could be that, 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 that perceptiveness mm. that, that can allow you to be successful that there's a lot of careers that involve that require that kind of visual perceptiveness and that notice that there's something different here in the noticing patterns, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Depending on their age, I'll, I'll try to hook up some kind of personal strength with, with something that, that, that actually you, you, can, you can serve the world, make a living doing. Yes. But I, 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 so the idea that we just praise effort, it, it, I, I, it really helps kids say, I, and what I, what I, what I, what I, when I'm working with kids, kids who the parents say, he's just la he la he's lazy, he doesn't work mm -hmm. hard anything. I'll give a kid a really hard problem. He'll work really hard about it. And a few minutes later, I'll say, you know, I just, one of the things I just noticed about you is that when, when something's challenging, you, you work your butt off. Yes. And I just, and I leave it. I, I don't, I, don't I, I just kind of leave it and come back to it. But I know that that, that, that kind of, I, just, I remember offhand comments that people made about me when I was 10 years old. I mean, it's that I realized that, that it's powerful. And then Ned, talk about the overhearing piece. You know, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so one, one other kind of, a, a, a tr I think it was a trick that I did very consciously, and I don't even know why, was I made a real effort when I would be in conversation with my wife or a friend, you know, grandparent who's visiting or, or on the phone. And I had this, the sense that my son or daughter was in earshot, or even they might be within earshot. Mm -hmm that I took great care of how I talked about them and, and would, would pick up some little nugget, just like Bill said, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, Katie is really, it's really remarkable how, how precise she is, very similar to your, to your son, how she notices things that most other people just, just don't see. I mean, I don't see them, and what I do when she comes <laughs> not, it's the, it's, the, it's the darndest thing. And and then I, and I don't I don't make much of it right or if mm -hmm. there's a or if there's a or if there's a weakness I so, say well yeah she finds that harder than she does some other things but it but you know I but it's 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 it sure looks like it's getting better and I you know and I and I don't think that's going to hold her back right and because you know what kids hear us say and see us do I think is so much more profound than what we say right to them because I obviously if they have the sense that we don't believe that they're listening. Then it must be then, then it must be true. If they're saying it right to me, maybe they're just saying that to be nice. Mm -hmm. So I always imagine this: the kids sitting there at the top of the stairs, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, right. including you know, my 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 wife has a relationship. Her there, there are aspects of her of her of her parents they can drive her a little bit nuts. As is true of probably all parents who ever lived. And she would sometimes get going, and I would I would gently suggest, you know, if I may, I would. I would take care not, when you're frustrated, you're allowed to be frustrated, but I would take care not to run them down too much because I, I think there's a concern that if, if our kids are watching you kind of like, oh, they just drive me crazy. But then when you're with them, you don't tell them, mom, you're driving me crazy. It creates this cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. you know, does, does mom do that with, with me too? Is she really, does she really think I'm a, a, a dud when, when she tells me I'm terrific? So anyway, mm -hmm. just my thoughts mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Yes, 
All right, yeah. that is really, really important. Do you, had, you wanted to add something, Bill? Oh, just something I just remembering it just because I, my, my son has ADHD and learning disabilities too, uh, as well. And I remember when he was eight years old, he, he uh, some friends of ours went on vacation to Colorado and, and took uh, my son and, and a couple of, another kid with them. Um, and the, 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 my friend who's on the vacation called and said, Elliot's a natural psychologist. And it, what it was is that there, there's a four-year-old girl, these, these like eight-year-old boys, and, and, and she, the girl's driving crazy. And, 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 my, and my son, apparently, the, the kids were trying to get her to stop. And, and my son just said, let's just be nice to her. <laughs> and, and it kind of changed the energy. Mm. And, but my point is this. He, he, he wasn't reading in first grade. He needed a ton of help academically. He was always, they had to create a special Hebrew class at his school for, for kids who had learning problems with being a couple of kids. And he got a PhD in psychology and he's, he's, he's and, and nobody, I, I didn't necessarily see that coming, but, but, but I'm just saying that, that I, I think that we can see these kind of interpersonal strengths or the kind of observational strengths or mm -hmm. um, athletic strengths with kids who aren't mm -hmm. good students. And my kid, the first, my, my son, the first year he played coach pitch baseball, co coach pitch, he didn't make contact with the ball, mm -hmm. but he really liked baseball. And so we, we did a lot of work on, on, on for years on, on, on his baseball game. And I felt that's as important as his schoolwork because right. it's important to him. And it's so good for kids to work hard to get better and better and better that something's important mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of this is striking such a nerve just because I, I feel so strongly about it. And my kids are definitely not, you know, the, the cut and dry conventional, you know, kids that they've talked about in Hollywood. So uh, I, I appreciate all of these things that you're saying. Another area that really struck a nerve because I'm in the tween stage. So here we are, you know, <laughs> technology is the thing. Here we are. And, and it, it did, it struck a nerve for me. You talk in your book, like, you know, we get nervous about the amount of technology the kids are sometimes using and, and their interest in it and, and their focus on it and how parents get worried. And then they wind up fortune telling. I've done this fortune telling what it means for like the future or catastrophizing about what's happening now and missing your life. The, the part that hit a nerve for me uh, in your book is as a parent, I, I do worry sometimes that my kids are spending too much time on technology or their interest is so like they, it seems like that's what they would love to be doing. And you're like, oh my gosh, when I was young, you know, I just... <laughs> Played with dirt and sang outside, um, and, and so you know, I, I <laughs> you had dirt. <laughs> what I what, what I what I love it. about that is like if, if any of us could put ourselves back in our seven year old self. So so just given the choice, are is, are you is, are you telling me are you convinced that given the choice between dirt and the internet, you would have chosen dirt? Right. <laughs> yes, we did not have the option, so we can't even say. And yes, so we wind up like all holy, right? And we're like, you know, when we were young, uh, yeah, that very long time ago. So, you know, one of the things you mentioned is connection, and and that's such a, a buzzword for me. And and how you talk to your teen about this need for like two way 
connection and at the same time, not pushing them further away by harping on them and going back to what we were talking about before this sort of nagging and reminding and you're on the internet too much, you're on social media too much, you're doing video games too much, it's not good for your brain. So can you talk about this idea of how we can talk about real connection and friendship with our kids versus technology or with technology um, and, and how we can kind of discuss it in, in a way that's not gonna make us sound like we're old as dirt. No, I, 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 <laughs> Just I'll bringing mention, the dirt metaphor back yeah. in. Yeah. I'll mention, I'll mention I, recently I was listening to this interview with, with a former CIA guy who interviewed terrorists and his, his, and he, his job was to try to basically de-radicalize them. And the way he'd start was through empathy. He'd, mm -hmm. he'd ask them questions and, and, and listen and reflect back and really let them know I'm trying to understand. He said, that, that's the way you get people to, 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 that's the way you really influence people is you treat them respectfully, you try to understand their experience. And so with technology, I mean, I, I'm 71 years old. I obviously, this, it's like a different world for me. And, and, and but I, I think that the, the way to, if I had kids, if I had kids in school, what I'd be trying to do, I'd be trying to understand, what do you love about this? Help me understand. Help me understand what, what, why you could play this all day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I can see why that's cool. And, and, and you know, I, I get the idea. I can, I can tell you feel so much more confident You've, and, and you feel connect with your friends. And we let them know that we, that we validate why this is important. And then we, we, it's when, 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 when things are, are not, when we are in conflict with them, we say, you know, I, I'm a little bit worried about, about it, that, that, that you may be spending too much time. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was in Houston. I asked like 25 ninth graders, how many of you feel that you're in front of a screen too, too much? And that every mm -hmm. single one raised their hand. Mm -hmm. It's not lost on them. And, but, but as we say in our book, if, if we argue, so they're kind of, most teenagers are kind of ambivalent, that they realize it's not healthy, that they feel worse if they're on social media too much. But if we would just argue that side, don't, 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 less, 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 stop, 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 they argue with the other side, they resist. And that's why they, they, that, that can, uh, as much closer to this than I am, I'd love your, your jump in, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I, I would emphasize that idea that, that to start with trying to understand why it's meaningful to them. I mean, a lot of folks have talked about this, that it's not monolithic, right? So some people are using this because it's how they, particularly this past year, how they connect with their friends. For some, it's, it's how they explore interests. For some, it's how they use it in creative ways. For some, I mean, they're just, they're, they're, you know, people are on the internet for a thousand different things and understanding what need it meets. You know, do they, do, you know, is, is, it, is it a need for feeling competent because you're, you're good at video games in ways that you're not at sports? Is it a need for connection because you found friends through one channel or another on the internet where you've had a hard time finding friends, you know, is it a need for escape is a need, you know, there's just a, there are a lot of different reasons and to understand why, you know, why before you, you, before you start judging it. I mean, so, you know, we, we talk about Bill mentioned, you know, motivational interviewing and the folks who started this were, were trying to help alcoholics drink less and for decades, hundreds of years, we give them all the reasons why you lose your health, you lose your job, you lose your spouse, you lose your, and it just, and, and people just dug in deeper. And so we wanna start by being, by being empathetic, being respectful. And then for me, I would say, you know, is there anything about this that, that, you know, that's awesome. Is there a need that's not being met? Because for us, 
it isn't technology, but what technology may be crowding out is, are you not getting enough sleep or is there not mm -hmm. enough face-to-face -face connection or you're not getting enough exercise? Mm -hmm. And you can have candid conversations about the needs that, that, that this or that app or game or movie needs mm -hmm. and the things that it doesn't need. Because exactly as Bill points out, we're all ambivalent. You know, do I love a glass of wine? Sure, I love a glass of wine. You know, are there downsides to too many glasses of wine? You betcha, right? And in same thing with, with, spending, with spending with time on screens, because one of the important, if you think the long game on this, our job as parents is not to help our kids, is not to regulate our kids' use of technology, but to help them learn to regulate their own use of technology. And if you go back to your dirt metaphor, we want to keep in mind that these technologies obviously did not exist when we grew up. And by design, these are the most addictive technologies mm -hmm. that have ever been created. In fact, as we mentioned in the book, there are about 300 psychologists who petitioned the American Psychological Association to censure the psychologists and neuroscientists who were involved, involved with Silicon Valley, making these things as addictive as possible. Mm. So we want to express care for our kids, which we're doing when we explain all the reasons why we're worried about their screen time. But we want to do it in a way that's respectful, that's not you're an idiot and you've been, you know, and you're, and you're wasting your time. But as Bill said, these are the concerns that I have. And we want to look for opportunities. There's a story that I like in, in, the, uh, in the book that I like a lot where my son, when he was in, when he's now going to sophomore year of college, when he was sophomore year of high school, Fortnite went through our house like a plague. Mm. And he I mean, and he's, I mean, he's, he's ADHD, so screens to him are already addictive. And this, yes. this just, it was brilliantly designed game to make it just, just endlessly addictive. And so he had a Friday off from school. And on Thursday night, I asked him, so how, uh, what are your plans for a day after school tomorrow? He's like, he sort of smiles and said, uh, play Fortnite. And I said, great. Um, anything else? Uh, I'll think about it. Okay. So I get up early, I go to work, I get home, it's six o'clock at night, whatever. There's my kid still oh, playing for the night in his pajamas. Pajamas, yes. <laughs> I admit to being a little hot, like <laughs> you know, clean your room, help your mind. And, <clears throat> and so, uh, but, I, but I've written this book, so there's that. <laughs> I, I say nothing and I look at him and say, can you? Could, could you, unfortunately, Fortnite doesn't take forever to die. So could you finish up the game and then, and then get, get, get dressed because I'd like to go out for pizza. He's like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And he's a really easy going guy. So it makes it easier. And, and I sort of simmer down a little bit. We go out to dinner and I, you know, and I, and I, but I say nothing and we enjoy our night out. Saturday, I say nothing. Sunday morning, I say nothing. For people who don't have an inattentive um, teenage voice, it's right around five o'clock where the reality that Monday is tomorrow hits them and they go, oh shoot. And now they're thinking about the six hours or whatever homework that they're, how are we gonna get this done? And now is the moment where he says, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I wasted all of Friday. Why didn't I do some work on Friday? Da, 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 da. I mean, all things that, you know, if oh. ever there was like a serve for like me to spike this in his face of a mm -hmm. parental, I told you so, mm -hmm. this was it. But again, there's this book. So <laughs> I look at him and I think, my best empathy and I say, I am, I, you know, dude, that sucks. And because I have lived that experience a million times myself, mm -hmm particularly when I was eight, his age, and I say, I'm, I said, boy, that is hard. I said, can I ask you a question? He says, sure. And I said, do you know, do you know, do you know roughly how much time you spend playing Fortnite on Saturday, on Friday? And he's like, uh, I don't know, eight, maybe 10 hours. 
Was it fun? Oh yeah, it was great. I won six times. Nice. Uh, in hindsight, do you have oh. a sense of how many, how many hours you could have gotten to get your fix and maybe not feel like you air quotes wasted your whole day? And he's like, yeah, probably four or five would have done it. I said, awesome. I said, would it help you in the future if mom or I tried to help you regulate your use of technology? He said, yeah, I think that'd be really good. Oh. Now I have buy-in. Now I have buy-in and we can talk respectfully, which I really work hard to do because I know the, the science on technology as, as much as any parent does. And I have the same current concerns as much as any parent does. But I know I have this inattentive, wildly creative, wonderful child who was at that point two years away from heading off to some college somewhere with enormous sums of my money. And how can I regulate his use of technology? I can't, I can't. He's at college and I'm at home. And so particularly when kids get into middle school and towards and high school, we need to let them struggle. We need to let them do this on, on their own with our help. Mm -hmm. But if we're managing their technology, if we're command and control and a kid is 15, 16, 17, Good luck sending him to college and not having him come home, you know, six weeks later. Mm. Wow. I cringe to that whole story, but that was <laughs> fabulous. And I've read the story. I, I have it. I have it circled in here. And so, <laughs> I, 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 yes, just hearing you talk about it, it feels like watching a movie. Yes, you handled it so beautifully. And I can feel it in my stomach when my children do that. And, and then you get a little hot there and you go... I just feel like I need to say something and you bite your tongue. I, that was outstanding. Just beautifully done. Thank and, you. And <laughs> yeah. What a nice way of, of allowing him to step up and, and come to his own conclusion. And yes, creating that buy-in because when it comes from you, then it can sound like nagging. And when it comes from them, it's the gospel truth. So that really works out well. I think parents so often think, well, I would step back when he steps up. And it never works that way. It never works that way. Mm. When you step back and create that way, then it's like, wait, this is on me. I've yes. never seen it work the other way. Oh. You know, the, the, be the, the, beating, the beating shall continue until morale improves. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 my experience is exactly the same, Robin, where, where you know, I'll, I'll see kids where the adults in their life are spending 80 units of energy trying to, make, trying to get the kid to, to reform. Or to, yeah. or to stop to, 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 to do better and the kid will spend 20 and, and if the, the parents get more anxious the other adults get more anxious and go up to 90 the kid will go to 10 units of energy hmm. and i and it's just as ned said i don't see it change mm -hmm. until the energy changes and we say mm -hmm. i'm not we, we say i'm not going to do this and mm -hmm. it's, it's not that we want kids in front of a screen 12 hours a day we don't it's that we, we want but we want them we want to help them. We want to negotiate with them, basically, what we can live with. I mean, it's, we, we believe in saying, I can't live with myself. No, knowing what, what the research on, on the, being on the social media, after an hour and a half, your mood starts to go. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm sorry, after 30 minutes, your mood mm -hmm. starts to go south. I can't, yeah. I, I can't just live with myself if it, I'm letting you just be out there for four hours. So, so we've, got some, we've got to find a way for you to use this stuff that, 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 that meets your needs, but also that I can live with. And I think mm. that, 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 but that kind of that collaborative problem solving, I think, yes. is, is really is really a, a really powerful tool. And we, we mentioned in the book that I, I was I gave a lecture in, in Houston a couple of years ago and at, at a very elite independent school. And I mentioned one of the most elite schools in D.C., Washington, D.C. Uh, and I don't remember why, but but at the end of the lecture, this woman came up to me and said, 
I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist at the Menninger Clinic here in, in Houston, this very prestigious mental health uh, clinic in, in Houston. So we know this independent school in DC really well because many of their graduates get into the most elite colleges, but they can't handle them emotionally. So they take a medical leave and they come here for treatment. Mm. And, and, and what we say in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, is we believe that, that kids should be able to run, we, we want kids to be able to run their own lives before we send them off to college or, or before they leave home to do something else. And with this goal, they, they, we want them to be able to run their own lives, especially before we send them into the most dis dysregulated living environment outside of a war zone, named mm -hmm. college dormitory. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. some of the kids that we see are home by November because they simply don't have enough experience running their own mm -hmm. lives. And that's mm -hmm. exactly the point that that, that therapist made. They just don't have the experience mm. taking care of themselves, solving their own problems, managing managing their own lives. Right. And, and didn't we just say that before, that the only way to, to get through anxiety or a problem is to experience it, is to go through it. Exactly. So I could talk to you guys all day, but of course we have other things we have to do in life. So can you give us your top tip? What do you want people to come away with either after reading your book or after this podcast? Like, what do you do love? Like this tip is so good. Somebody could take that away and, and use it right now. And it's awesome. I, I, I will say that um, it's this. If you think you can change your kid, think differently. The, 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 that, but the point that we make at various times is that we really can't change somebody else um, unless they're asking us to help them change. And for the, oftentimes, we're, we're trying to use our, our energy, the force of our will to get kids to change, and they buck us, they fight us, and it just doesn't work. And so much of our book is about communicating in a, re, in a respectful, non-forceful way and I think that, that if we remember that I really, that force doesn't work, I really can't change somebody. And we, and we look for more effective ways to communicate, we're gonna be better off. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Mm. Ned, do you want to also give us a top I would, tip? I would, yeah. Thanks, I mean, I think the big overarching thing for me is that it's not so much of our being successful and our effective, so much of being effective in our communication is not the what, but the how. And I have a daughter who is, my son who is 19 is about the most easygoing person on the planet. And my daughter is plumbing the other depths. She is got about, she's brilliant. She's got about 20 IQ or 30 IQ points on me, but she's intense and she's stubborn. And she just, you, you do not push her into doing things. And so how I talk with her is it makes an enormous difference because all of us, as parents, we want to be effective with our kids. Obviously, we love them and we have wisdom to share. And so the, the how matters enormously. And if you feel that you are, if you feel impatient or frustrated with your kid, know that your kid is feeling that too. And when they're in that state, they simply, the brain state, they simply cannot hear the wisdom that you have to share. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last piece, and I know I'm going longer than one, is, is to remind ourselves that the relationship we will have with our kids as adults should be decades longer than the relationship we have with our kids as children. Mm. And so I'm in this wonderful position where my 17 and 19 year olds, I mean, they need a credit card and a few more things, <laughs> but they're bright enough and knowledgeable enough that they can go out and, and, and run their own lives. 
which is a, a huge parenting win for my wife and for me. But I still believe that I have important advice to give them. I still believe that I have wisdom to share. And because we take make my wife and I have this very conscious effort to exactly as Bill said, to communicate with them in ways that not just should, not just shows care, but that is respectful. It, it's kept me in a position where we, my, my, son, my son, when he's in college, will reach out every week and talk about this, that, the other. And he was telling us about this girl who, and it goes the details of which don't matter. And he says, I can't believe all the stuff that I tell you guys. Mm. And all I keep thinking is how much of the seeds of him sharing with me really important stuff. I mean, how much more am I interested about his relationships and how he's trying to navigate and to build a life? How much more does that matter than the homework that he didn't do in seventh mm -hmm. grade that we talk about in the self-driven mm -hmm. child? Because we, again, all of us as parents, we want to have close loving relationships with our kids and we want to be effective in, in how we communicate them. Beautifully said, beautifully said. I, I agree. And it is important to keep those moments in mind that it's not about seventh grade homework or that they may have forgotten the permission slip on the table once again. It's, it's about <laughs> these beautiful seeds of conversation and that they are taking what they've learned through experience and through these conversations and applying it to their lives, especially when they do it spontaneously and on their own after years of fumbling through. It's, it's really gratifying. Can you give us the resource of the week? Where can we go to get more information about you, uh, your book, and the great work you're doing? So the book is really anywhere you, you can find books. Um, the, the, the website is The Self-Driven Child, uh, which it has both of our books there. And so you can mm -hmm. find about where we have events, where we're talking, how to buy both books, a little bit more about me and, and Bill. Um, and then you know all the social yeah. media stuff is on there too. Yeah, politics, we're, um, our book is published on August 17th and we're gonna be uh, uh, doing a politics and prose uh, talk about virtually uh, about our book on the 17th of August through politics and prose. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm very excited for it and feel very privileged that I got to pre-read it and uh, <laughs> pre-interview pre you on it. It's been so much fun talking to you. I feel like this could go on and on because it, it's just a lot of fun and so much joy coming from having these conversations with you about conversations. I really appreciated your insights and your strategies about how to help our kids become more motivated um, by stepping back and uh, listening and maybe doing a lot less nagging and reminding. <laughs> just really like the way that you approach all of these very tough topics. So thank you so much for sharing with us, with us today. Well, you're Thanks completely welcome. You're a great yeah. interviewer. Yeah, oh. yeah. And, and we look forward to seeing your book too. Oh, thank you. Well, I will let you know when that comes out. You bet. And, and in the meantime, uh, thank you. And I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I am, imagine you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. Let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com, twitter.com slash drrobin. Also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. I'm going to be going back and forth with Bill and Ned, and I'm going to be creating memes because of course, so many things were said today that need to be slapped on a meme. Great 
uh, information, great phrases that you can then share with your friends because we want these things to be sort of immortalized and we can print them out and put them up on our mirrors so we could say them over and over again to ourselves. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about these outstanding solutions that Bill and Ned talked about and also their book. And if you could do that review, I can't tell you how much these five-star reviews, like they really very much help the not just the rating for the podcast, but the exposure of the podcast, the exposure of these amazing guests. I hope that everybody gets to use these strategies in their own home. So I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much to, for coming today. That's all the time we have, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. I know you probably heard something today and you go, oh Lord, I should just, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to really do that to major do-over. And that's okay. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Isn't that great? You can get up tomorrow morning and try again, or you can try again right now. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information.